survive. It was like that, just surviving, not nothing more more than that. Yeah, and I saw feel really foreign in my own country. It it was at name I had that title on me, but this is not my land. It was like that. Welcome back to Beyond Soundbites. This narrative podcast series invites faith-driven refugee supporters to practice listening. Being a listener has the power to ground our advocacy by reminding us that God created every single person who becomes displaced and loves him or her with a depth we cannot comprehend. I'm Jacob Mao. You're listening to episode three of six in this series. In the last episode, we met Peter, a displaced Iranian whose process to resettle as a refugee was blocked at the last minute by President Trump's travel ban. His story shows how displaced people are at odds with a world order caught in dramatic pendulum swings. The reality of a new paradigm in global migration has polarized nations, their people, and their policies. It has led to the endless crafting of narratives and arguments to fuel and justify those policies. In the U.S., for example, One such argument defends the downsizing of our resettlement program by pointing out that our country plays its part in the broader issue of forced displacement by giving more money than anyone else to the United Nations. Thereby, we support programs that help refugees with their other two long-term options, integrating into their current host country or repatriating home when it's safe. The ideas of integration and repatriation, however, seldom match reality in regions of conflict and poverty. And even though almost 40 countries participate in the global resettlement program, it's still a micro-channel to long-term stability. In 2017, it only extended to 0.1% of the total global displaced population. So it's no wonder that millions of people, as we saw in the Mediterranean region in 2015, are carving their own way as what some call irregular migrants. In the next story, we'll meet someone whose family, over the course of three decades across three different countries, has tried all these avenues to rebuild their lives after displacement and still has nowhere to claim as home. Dariush lives under refugee status in a Central Asian country not far from Turkey. He's in his late 20s, barrel-chested, athletic, He wears his haircut almost shaved on the sides but long on the top and tied back in a ponytail. He's dressed in blue jeans and a long-sleeve workout shirt. He has a serious look that matches his build, but he laughs easy, smiles often. Dariush's story of displacement begins with his father. The Soviet-Afghan war in the 1980s turned about 5 million Afghan people into refugees. Dariush's father, a teenager at the time, was among the 1.5 million who sought refuge in Iran, where he ended up living for 20 years. During that time, he married an Iranian widow who already had kids. Then together, they bore Dariush and his siblings. Iran is a rough place for the 3 million Afghans who live there today as migrants or refugees. At least it was for Dariush. He grew up feeling the sting of racism from different levels of society, even from within his own family. Not all of them. Some of them was nice too, but most of them were really, I don't know how I could say that, racist or I don't know. Yeah, because my father's was from Afghanistan and they look back to my mom because how one Iranian person could get married to a foreign man. And because of that, even my mom's 
<coughs> family blaming her and she was kind of far away from them too and I, say, I saw that kind of racisty when I talked with <coughs> my uncle from my mom's side. At school the teachers were harsh and the environment was restrictive especially for Dariush who had an affinity for western style dress. As a child I always liked USA so I had a one and Nike's it was a USA flag yeah and it was so nice and it that uh, Nike when I wear that it make many problems for me Really? To sending out from a school, make other problems, yeah. Oh, it was kind of you do, do a crime to have that flag on yourself. Why you have to do that? It's enemy's flag. I, I don't know why. He went on to describe racist structures reminiscent of apartheid or Jim Crow. I saw that on Iran. They do not let use same pool which Iranian use for Afghan men or parks or schools or universities. They, they make it really hard for you to live in there. Afghans in Iran are also not allowed to work legally, he says. So their prospects are limited to the most difficult and low-paying jobs. In recent years, many have been lured in or recruited by the Iranian authorities to fight with the Assad regime in Syria. But in Dariush's view, many are simply manipulated to die in someone else's war because they're poor and placeless. In short, his family's prospects in Iran were not great. This wasn't what my father wants from us because, because he escaped with his family when, when he was really young and come to Iran to fresh start and be outside of the war. But after he tried a lot and even get married with one ladies from Iran, they, it, it wasn't possible to make it better for us. He tried too much. He works a lot. It was like sometimes I just maybe could see my father per week. It wasn't possible to see him earlier because when he come outside, they will ask for ID, who you are, where you, where you are going, where you are working and make trouble for him. So he choose to be not that much outside and it just make it worse and worse. When Dariush was in his early teens, his mother died from cancer. Without her, it was even more difficult for his father, as an Afghan, to live there and raise his kids. Because my mom tried to show all this stuff, make us to going to school and took all of these jobs on herself. Yeah, she tried her best. But for foreign men, as an Afghan man in there, it's really hard to deal with the government stuff or schools in there it they they look so different maybe they changed now i don't know i have any idea but when i was there it was terrible with his mother gone and his half siblings either married or moved out dariush his father and his siblings moved in with his paternal grandparents who also lived in iran they weren't in close relation before that and they had a lot of rules that dariush wasn't used to because of that limit it was really hard for me to living with them but still i was thankful to have someone to live with after living in iran a couple of decades dariush's father still couldn't establish a home and a future for his kids so they had to decide what to do next continue living as undocumented aliens and cultural outcasts or move back to a desert war zone in afghanistan they opted for the war zone
when father asked you want to go back i said yes why not we will go there doesn't matter at least it's our country i could be as how i am there doesn't matter it's desert i want to live there that's all right i will go there and i seal my how my own country and live freely doesn't matter when i die or what happening everything will be all right there. when he left afghanistan as a refugee in the 80s dariush's father was 14 years old now around 2005 his son was the same age as they made the reverse journey with hopes that his homeland would receive them back but after i crossed the border from Iran to Afghanistan, I saw I was wrong because it's really harder to talk about something what you don't have any idea about that. You have experience like anything about that. You know, it was different. They went to live with his father's cousins in a big home, a walled compound with multiple structures and rooms inside. There was no running water or indoor plumbing like they'd had in Iran. Inside the home, Dariush saw one telltale sign that he was in a different land with different struggles. His relatives had a broken gutter, and they had repaired it with an old war weapon. One part of gutters was missed, and they put the bazooka as a pipe there for, for yeah, for through that water. Uh, and it was like shocking for me. Wow, what is this? <laughs> Bazooka in center of the home. Uh, okay. <laughs> That's how you knew. You yeah, were yeah. Somewhere different. Yeah, and it was like shocking. So I said, "That's all right. It's our country. I have to be. Have to start it again. Have our life." Dariush and his family slowly settled into the place over several months. There was one area of the home compound that had fallen into disrepair and wasn't being used, so they started fixing it up and painting. So me and dad start, dad start to paint the walls inside and outside and start to help him. That day was nice, yeah. We just try hard, make everything better, outside looking, inside, yeah. Everything just becomes more normal to accept, yeah, this is our home. It took a while to settle into the family, too, as it had with his grandparents. These relatives were more conservative in culture and dress, Style was a central issue for Dariush. At first, there was some tension between them, adults and kids alike. But with time, things loosened up. I saw that young generation, like that cousin's sons, who they were same as, as like me and my brother, they start to become look like us and become more friendly and we like us, talk like us. That, that was so cool but because it make it easier for me because I, I wanted to feel, you know, relaxed at home. I know outside is terrible, but at home, yeah. This series of Beyond Soundbites was created in collaboration with the Refugee Highway Partnership. If you're listening before September 2018, you can still register for their annual North America event. Before we continue with Dariush's story, let's hear a word from Nate Schultz. Hey, I'm Nate Schultz in Seattle, Washington with the Refugee Highway Partnership. On October 24th through 26th in Chicagoland, our 10th annual roundtable will bring together churches, ministries, and individuals from the U.S. and Canada supporting forcibly displaced people. We hope you'll join us. 
learn more and sign up at rhpna.com. The struggle to find employment and education followed the family from Iran back to Afghanistan. His father couldn't find work. There was very little education infrastructure. So Dariush got a job selling cosmetics with his cousins. The danger and struggle symbolized in the bazooka-rigged gutter soon broke into his reality. One day, his boss sent everyone home and told them to go inside and not come out because they'd heard there was fighting in the area. I just come home and uh, stay inside as how they told me. Said, not doesn't matter what you hear, just do not come out. So I did that and I hear many gunfire and yeah, it was too loud. And it, that field was like, you are center of the war. Yeah, that, that, was, that was so bad. And after that, it was kind of shock. No, this country is not normal. I cannot, I cannot stay in here. At first, I was, I don't know, maybe more young and kid and just do not take life serious. But I saw that it's easy to lose your life in there so easy. And dying, it's just become daily thing for people and seeing, you know, when you are going to work and you see everyday tanks in the streets, soldiers, lots of soldiers, and you see it's, something is wrong. So it just makes us to choose, go out of country. For the second time in his life, Darius's father decided to leave Afghanistan because violence wouldn't allow him to carry out a normal life. The first time he had been a teenager, this time he had three motherless children under his care. Survive. It was like that, just surviving, not, nothing more, more than that. Yeah. And I saw, feel really foreign in my own country. It, it was at name, I had that title on me, but this is not my land. It was like that. They went back to Iran to figure out what to do next. But first they had to obtain visas at the embassy. When we tried to take a visa for Iran, it was so terrible. They just took a market and put the numbers on us, on my arms, and it was so weird. And had weapons and other tools to keep people in, in line. It was so, uh, so sad seeing that. They were turned back the first time. In fact, it took several months before they could obtain a visa. And when they finally returned over the border back into Iran, they were back to square one. So we were in that two country who where I where my father's are is and where my mom's is and we were foreign in both of them kind of not acceptable from mom's side and same to the father's side too so it was expensive to find a smuggler who could get them into turkey and they didn't have enough money the country where they live today was the second option, but its government would not issue visas to Afghans. So I understand it's sometimes it's hard to, you know, have an idea about who will come in. And I know, but still, we were young family, like 14, 12 or 8, just child, nothing more. How we could be any problem for any countries. Lacking a legal path, his father finally paid someone to smuggle them in. A few extended family members joined or followed close behind, and here they began their third attempt to establish a home. 
with the distant hope of someday accessing formal resettlement through UNHCR. They didn't face the violence of Afghanistan or the racism of Iran, but there were still plenty of challenges. Yeah, it was so hard. We just rent one empty, really, really empty, totally empty home. Yeah, and some nights we just use our clothes as a pillow for ourselves to go to sleep. That, that was so hard at first. And yeah, we had a little bit money, but after weeks just, just finished. So we were in, in some countries where we don't know anyone and have any idea about outside. They received protection letters that showed their status as refugees recognized by UNHCR. In practice, as Darius describes it, these documents guard them from deportation, provide them access to some medical and financial support, and make it easier to get hired under the table. Darius got a job at a factory that repairs and paints furniture and was willing to hire him in spite of his inability to speak the local language. Thank God they did that. I'm really thankful for that, yeah. But they just paid so cheap because we, we are no one here, so we have to work all us together to make this life going on. Yeah. For a couple years, it was Dariush, his father, his brother, his sister, his aunt, and two cousins in a two-bedroom apartment so they could pool their income. But once he had enough language ability, Dariush opened his own shop. His cell phone is full of pictures of furniture he's repaired and repainted. And with the increased income, they split up into separate apartments. As for the long term, they were still in limbo. During the first few years they lived in this host country, between 100 and 300 refugees were formally resettled out from there each year by the UN. But the number declined year by year. Less than 15 have been resettled from that country in the last four years. I was kind of hopeless about my future because I don't know why, why I leave. If I have to leave like this and be just in that country, this country, and spend your time for nothing. What what's that means? What's the point? The family suffered a fracture in 2015 when Dariush's brother decided that he would carve his own path to the West. He was smuggled out into Turkey, then into Greece, and was among the 1.3 million who claimed asylum in Europe that year, eventually reaching Germany. Dariush gets serious when he talks about his brother leaving. He hesitates for a few seconds, asks if he should give personal details, then talks about another thing that made this season difficult for him. He had grown up with a low self-image, he says. He was skinny and his friends and co-workers always teased him about it. It was it was a little bit hard because I was like look so weak and many friends and workmate make a fun or I don't know but it's it's really hurting me about situation is bad and also this thing happened yeah it just destroyed me and I try to make myself better look better and I start to do exercise and yeah he had also missed out on years of education as a teenager because he had to work instead. So he'd made goals to educate himself. Learn more, study more, use more internet and know how, how I, I, I could be better, how I could make communication better with people, how other culture is, how other people 
like to live. You know, I, I always like to learn more about more people. With his resettlement journey at a standstill, Darius set out to improve the parts of his life that he could control. It was more than just a fight for a better self-image. It was a personal battle against what he sees as one of the problems that plagues Afghanistan and its people. Our knowledge is poor, I think. When your mind is poor, you cannot think big when, when you, you are just limiting all things. Yeah, it just breaks everything and make problems for you. Yeah, this is why we have lots of problems there. Afghanistan has one of the lowest adult literacy rates in the world, around 30%. But poor education is one problem that leads to another, the Western stereotype that all Afghans are ignorant and content to live in violence. It seems this is the force Dariush is determined to define himself against. Physical poverty works hand-in-hand with conflict, he says, forcing people into situations the rest of the world doesn't understand. When they left Afghanistan, for example, Another option for a young man in his desperate position was to become a mercenary fighter. Taliban pay on that that time four hundred dollars. That loss of money in Afghanistan, and because if you work, maybe you you could make hundred dollars on that time, and they pay for four hundred percent more than that, and for, for doing nothing. And this is why many people just go there and be unite with them because they, they had to. They cannot find a job. They, they don't have any idea about what they're doing. They just, they just doing that because they, they, they are hungry. They have to make food for their family. And that things make all people around the world, doesn't matter in USA or Europe, thinking wrong about us. Yeah, we, we lived in really hard situations, but it's not, it's not like that. We, we also, at first I want to say that no one wants to see any relative die every day, but it happened in there. Yeah, people really have a really bad life out there, but it not mean they don't want to live better they don't they don't want to live in peace they try their best we tried we tried to go back we we wanted to fresh start there but it wasn't possible so and what about now are dariush and his family any closer to finding a homeland they can claim than his father was 30 years ago with formal resettlement a fading hope that depends largely on the government of their host country. I respect this uh, government and what anything it, it is because doesn't matter it is they protect their people. No one dies in here for because of kamikazes or anything like that. So um, I I feel happy about that and I respect that. But we ask for yeah become a citizen, but they they just don't accept that. For a parting shot, let's revisit something you'd notice right away if you met Dariush in person. The fascination he had as a kid for all things USA never went away. He wrote his name in English before he wrote it in Farsi. He started learning English through American movies and still immerses himself in American media. He discusses with me Stranger Things, Breaking Bad, 
an animated Disney series called Gravity Falls. He grew up on American pop music too. When father, sometimes father work at home and we have a, one old cassette player, so I hear the music from Michael Jackson or Mother Talking on that days. And that was so nice for me. I said, it's so nice. And I tried to understand that what they saying father and dad cannot help me most of the time, but I tried to learn more about them. And that was so sweet and I really like them. Still, I like that music. It makes me to feel happy, doesn't matter. It reminds me that hard days, but, but I like them. Picture Dariush as a skinny 10-year-old, working alongside his dad on some project at home, listening to Smooth Criminal on cassette, singing along to words he doesn't understand, stomping to the beat in his American flag Nikes, and imagining the freedom and opportunity of the West. Sitting here now on the eighth floor of a concrete high-rise, biceps bulging under his shirt, laughing his way through the story of his family's long search for home, he's imagining it still. And after these 10 years living in here still, I don't have any place where I could say, yes, this is my home. And I was have that hope in me, not me, my younger brothers and sister too. We will could go to a country where they talk in English. And yeah, it was kind of my dream. It's disturbing to picture the scene of Dariush as a teenager with his two younger siblings and his father, traversing the fringes of international boundaries, looking for a place to settle year after year while any semblance of a quote-unquote normal childhood slips past them. It's a tragic story that has repeated itself millions of times over. As of March 2018, an estimated 1.7 million of the nearly 4 million displaced people in Turkey are under 18 years old. For this episode's closing mini-story, we'll meet two people in Turkey, Karim and Shireen, who are pouring themselves out on behalf of the Syrian children living in limbo there. The rule for the mini-stories, you may remember, is that we focus on the subject outside his or her narrative of displacement. Like the kids and families they serve, Karim and Shireen are also refugees, but I encounter them first through many other lenses. They are teacher, administrator, host, innovator, community leader, mother and father. Karim is a Syrian man who came to Turkey two years ago and now oversees an education center that serves 250 refugee kids. He offers sharp, confident, black and white assessments of anything from Turkish culture to the twisted ethics of humanitarian aid. After a meal, he fights so hard with my friend to pay the bill, I get embarrassed and start shooting nervous glances around the restaurant. The next day, we visit his site while classes are going on. They have wisely put in place a strict no-media policy between visitors and the children, but Kareem shares with me how his own involvement at the school began. After I came, um, the people who, who have this school wanted to make it big, and I was ready, and it was by my wish to, to make it really big, like we are doing something, not just doing two hours per day working and that's it. So we started to make it bigger and to receive more kids. And we really had, like, in short time, 150 kids 
like after a few months. In 2017, the Turkish Ministry of National Education announced an initiative to get Syrian children registered in Turkish schools rather than temporary education centers. Karim and his team adapted their strategy. So we started teaching them Turkish. We hired Turkish teachers, we counseled Arabic, and we started to teach English, uh, Turkish, sorry. So we had, we sent some kids, like uh, also some people who is working here, start to visit schools, Turkish schools, to register our kids there. And it worked. And we had really very great kids in that schools. We're talking in the teacher's lounge, a small room with a printer stacked on a shelf in the corner, two old couches sitting in an L shape. On one wall hang circle clay sculptures with children's names etched in them. A beautiful painting of a ship afloat on a deep purple stirring sea sits next to them. Karim says they plan to give the painting as a gift to grease the wheels of partnership with one of the Turkish schools where they register many children. Such gifts, he asserts, are required if you want to get anything done with any Turkish institution. Karim shrugs and laughs and says it had been the same way in Syria, only worse. Provided that the government's move to enroll Syrian kids in school is a step toward long-term integration, Karim, his team, and the children are on the front edge of the wave as cultures collide. We are sure this place really will make difference in their lives. And already we saw that and we touched that in their lives. Like, and we hope, like I hope this all of kids will have really good education in the future. I think the only way we can get some harmony between these societies and to make some relationships, it comes through these kids. When they start to make friends, and like their parents will start to make friends, but it will start with the kids. If the kids now, like Syrians, play alone and Turkish play alone, this is really, it shows that really different societies. But if it will, if they will work, play together, that will reflect on their parents too. At a nearby town, we visit another education center started by a Syrian doctor and staffed by Syrian teachers. The center serves 150 children and provides classes in knitting, drawing, chess, Quranic studies, Arabic language, Turkish language, English language, Boy Scout activities, psychological support, and more. My traveling companions and I crowd into the small central room that each of the classrooms open into. As the classes buzz around us and trucks rumble by on the adjacent road, we speak with Shireen, one of the teachers. Without these centers, the kids would be defeated by war. But praise be to God, these centers and schools allowed for us to take out kids from the center of war so they can stop feeling the circumstances surrounding them. So for example, we got out from war, but still there are a lot of difficult circumstances in refuge. It's not only war that destroys kids, but also these surrounding circumstances. Here the housing is difficult. Sometimes more than one family lives in the same home, and this is really difficult for a child. So yes, Praise be to God that right here at the center we make the children forget these troubles a little bit. We had one child at the beginning of his enrollment. He was very shy. So thanks be to God that after a few lessons he showed a lot of difference, a lot. 
Here we have trees. There are grapes, sour grapes, walnuts, and figs. We arranged an activity for kids to start picking fruits. Each child picked a bunch of grapes, and they took them home in a bag. And when they brought them home, they felt a lot of happiness because those grapes came from our center. Shireen is from the city of Idlib, only about an hour into Syria from the Turkish border. She lost her mother in the war. Her father died before, she told us. She, her husband, and their two children have been in Turkey for a few years, and she's worked at the center for a year and a half. She speaks of her hope to return home. Thanks be to God. In my home area, only every now and then there has to be an airstrike. Then there's peace again, and then again a strike. God willing, we will return home, but only if there's peace where war is gone. Shireen and her teammates are far from the helpless victims you see in the common media portrayals of refugees. In their limbo and waiting, they are putting their God-given skills to use serving their community, bringing order, structure, and beauty. They lead us into one of the classrooms where a dozen or so young girls sit around a table knitting. On a bookshelf sit handmade pillows in the shapes of different fruits and vegetables a flower made from brightly painted pistachio shells. In another room, a dozen boys are playing chess under the instruction of an older man in a plaid button-up shirt. They sit at a long table in pairs, chessboards in between them. Their teacher has a board hung on the wall with plastic chess pieces taped to it. When they break for recess, we wander out into the yard behind the school. One of the boys discovers a turtle beside a tree. The turtle's name is Lulu, they tell me, and his presence incites a great ruckus among the kids. Watching the joyous commotion in the recess yard, I forget for a few seconds the weight that hangs over the place. Behind the kids, across the road a couple hundred yards south, a concrete wall bisects the face of the hills and marks the border between Turkey and their homeland. Its thick shadow falls heavy on the dirt and rocks below. All names and some identifying details in these stories were changed or omitted, and participants were informed about how their interviews would be shared. This series of Beyond Soundbites was created in collaboration with the Refugee Highway Partnership North America, a network of churches, ministries, and individuals supporting refugees and asylum seekers across the U.S. and Canada. Other organizational partners include the Refugee Language Program, Exodus World Service, Tucson Refugee Ministry, Global Community Partners, and abounding service. John and Valerie Guerra created the theme music. The rest of the songs are by Chris Dingman. Griffin Jackson was our content editor and story advisor. Brett Ratliff mixed the episodes. We'd love to create another series of episodes that go beyond sound bites in search of the personhood of displaced people, but we need your help. Find out how to donate and support at beyondsoundbitespodcast.org.